0: Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Williams. Join me as we explore the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur and discuss a wide range of military history topics, from the American Civil War to the Korean War. When most people think of United States Navy admirals in the Pacific during World War II, Nimitz, Halsey, and Kincaid come to mind, usually. Usually, Vice Admiral Willis A. Lee is less well-known. A career naval officer and a seven-time Olympic medalist, during World War II, he played a key role in the Pacific as one of the Navy's top combat admirals. To shed some light on Lee's career and legacy, today we are joined by Paul Stillwell, author of Battleship Commander, The Life of Vice Admiral Willis A. Lee Jr. Welcome, sir, and thank you for joining us today.
1: Amanda, thank you very much.
0: Battleship Commander has the distinction of being the first biography of Lee. Why did you decide to write this book about him? And can you tell us about your source material?
1: The inspiration came in 1969 when I served in the crew of the battleship New Jersey. And one day I was looking through a World War II cruise book for the ship and came upon a page that had the photos of four different admirals who had been on board back in World War II. And uh, as it happened with Lee, it was 25 years earlier, 1944. The others were Halsey, and Spruance, and a man named Oscar Badger. And the name Lee was just completely new to me. So I, my curiosity got to me and I started looking at books that talked about him. And that sort of built into a, a flame of inspiration. And I was eager to learn more about him. And I I had a a detour from the Navy-type jobs after I got out of journalism school and after active duty in the New Jersey. I worked as a sports PR man for the St. Louis Cardinals uh, baseball and football teams, not the sort of preparation you would expect for naval history, But then uh, in 1974, I joined the staff of the Naval Institute, which is on the Academy grounds in Annapolis. And this sort of opened the, the door because there's so much source material in the Washington area, in the Naval Academy Library, and what have you. And it moved from an inspiration to a passion. I began searching for primary sources, I went to interview. Individuals who had served with Lee, who had known him in one capacity or another, I started writing letters. Some came to dead ends, but a lot of people wrote back because it turned out Lee was the kind of man who inspired loyalty from those who served with him. There's an old term that uh, loyalty down begets loyalty up, and he took care of his crews. And so I, I got a lot of first person vignettes that way. And, as I was casting out my net, I heard of a man named Evan Smith who had lived in Cincinnati, a newspaper man. and he had grown up in the same county that Lewis Lee did, Owen County in Kentucky. And I, the trail kind of went cold, but this was pre-Google, of course. I got hold of a Cincinnati telephone book and found a listing and wrote a letter and it was answered by his daughter Evan Smith had died years earlier without writing that much of the text and the answer i got was from the daughter she said my mother now lives in Versailles Kentucky the, the french pronounce it versailles the kentuckians call it versailles so i went to see her and a wonderful generous gracious lady she said I have been wondering for years what to do with Evan's material about Admiral Lee, and I had my answer when I got your letter. So I went out to see her, and she turned over all the research material, no strings attached, so that her husband's work could eventually come to some fulfillment. And the beauty of it was that in the early 60s, Evan Smith had written to a lot of Lee's contemporaries, classmates at the Naval Academy. And they wrote back wonderful first-person memories of being with Lee. Admiral Chester Nimitz, top commander in the Pacific in World War II, had written a handwritten letter about his association with Lee. So it was primary source material. Then I was able to locate a man named Gilliam Ertzen, who lived in Pennsylvania, he had been with Lee from October 1942 till the very day of Lee's death in August 1945. And Lee and his wife had no children. And Gil Ertson was almost like a surrogate son for the Lees. There was a close personal relationship. They saw each other every day on board ship. And so I had multiple interviews with Ertson and things that I could get nowhere else because He was there on the spot. And in fact, at the end of the war, the Ertsons and the Lees lived in a boarding rooming house in Falmouth, Forsyth, Maine. And the idea was that Ertson and his wife could have a honeymoon a year after they were married. And so Mary Ertson was a nurse, and the Lees were in the floor above. And at night, she could hear him pacing, pacing. So one night, shortly after the war ended, she had a talk with him and said, what is all this about? And everybody else seemingly was glad that the war was over. Lee was downcast because he had expected to be out in the Pacific for the end of the war. And he was instead in Maine doing anti-kamikaze work. Well, of course, with the end of the war, there was no more Kamikaze, so no more job. And on the 25th of August... Lee and his wife cooked breakfast for Gil and Mary Ertson because they were going to leave the Navy at that point. He was a temporary reserve officer. So Lee's made breakfast. And then for the first time in the summer, Lee went to catch a boat to his office on Great Diamond Island in Casco Bay. The boat cast off from the shore. And within a very few minutes, he was dead of a heart attack. So the Ertzens had been with Lee to the very end, and uh, that gave a personal glimpse. And and that has been my aim throughout the book to present him not only as an operational naval officer, but also as the human being he was. He was a a warm, friendly man, had a cute sense of humor, and was not a screamer, the type that sometimes takes charge. He viewed the, the people who worked for him as helping him do his job, and he in turn helped them do theirs. A third good source was in Rock Island, Illinois. This is where Lee's widow had lived. She died four years after he did, and so all the things that he had had with him on board ship were shipped back to the home in Rock Island, and so I was invited to come out. Uh, His Widow's sister, Margaret Allen, was the family historian and had written dozens and dozens of pages about the Lees. His wife called him Lee, and she called him, or he called her Chubby, uh, even though she weighed about 97 pounds. So I can't figure that nickname out. So I had all that available, including a service record. So, it was a matter of putting together these pieces to form a complete portrait of the man. Well,
0: that's all very, very interesting. And I think you've given us a sense of how Lee's story ends. But can you give us a brief overview of his career leading up to World War II?
1: As I said, he was born in Owen County, Kentucky, uh, the town of Owenton. His father was a county judge, and he had a sister who was uh, straight-laced, married a a local lawyer. He had two younger sisters who were hellraisers, and Lee himself would fit into that category. These letters to Evan Smith portrayed him as an individual who was always pulling pranks. He would... invariably shooting. One man I interviewed said he seemed to have an unlimited supply of ammunition and unlimited enthusiasm for shooting. Well, that shooting specialty stayed with him throughout his life. He went to the Naval Academy. He was on the Navy rifle team. Uh, He won the National Pistol and Rifle Championships in 1907. He was graduated in 1908 went to serve in a battleship, then out to the China station, and he had acquired what now would not be politically correct, the nickname of Chink. And uh, some of his classmates at the academy thought he looked somewhat like a Chinaman. So he was in his glory out there on board the USS New Orleans, working with their guns. In 1914, he was on board the battleship New Hampshire during a incident in Veracruz, New Mexico. He went home, uh, went ashore with sailors in a landing party, and there were snipers trying to shoot the sailors. Well, Lee, being the great shot he was, would sit out in the open and dare the Mexicans to shoot at him. And he, he returned fire, and they came tumbling down to the ground. He went on from there to three destroyer commands in the 1920s, the sister-in-law, Margaret Allen, wrote that uh, it was an unusual background for May Bell, his wife, grew up in the north. And she learned that the word here is pronounced with two syllables in Charleston. Hi-yah! And she saw the Spanish moss and what have you. He served tours of duty ashore in what was called the Fleet Training Division. And this was a matter of training the fleet to operate tactically as a whole, individual capabilities in communications, engineering, gunnery, and so forth. And Lee, even though he was Mr. Gunnery, did not have an ordnance postgraduate degree, but he had the smarts. He was an incredibly brilliant man mentally, could solve Complicated math problems in his head, and strove constantly to improve the navy's gunnery. He commanded the cruiser Concord on the west coast, and under his leadership, light cruiser won all sorts of awards. They even won the Battenberg Cup for rowing races, even though light cruisers were not expected to compete with the heavy cruisers and the battleships. But the Concord's crew did. He came ashore in 1939, again to fleet training, and the idea was to do whatever was needed to get the fleet ready for war. And he pushed hard to get anti-aircraft guns on board ship because it was obvious that aviation was coming along as the primary means of attack, as the Japanese demonstrated so dramatically at Pearl Harbor. He knew a uh, about radar, which was then in its infancy, and pushed to get it on board ships, and fire control radar, which would enable uh, the guns to be aimed accurately at enemy targets. So then in the fall of 1942, he was able to go to sea again as commander of Battleship Division 6. He embarked in the new battleship, South Dakota, and then she sailed for the South Pacific, to get into active combat. So in
0: 1942, he ends up in the Pacific. November 1942, he's going to play a very key role in the naval battle of Guadalcanal, and you argue in the book that this is a major reason why he should be remembered today. Can you lay this out for us?
1: Well, this was probably the pinnacle achievement of his entire career, and it called on his knowledge of gunnery and radar and fire control. The scenario was that the island of Guadalcanal had been seized by the Marines in August '42. had an airstrip, and whichever country, Japan or the United States, controlled that airstrip, commanded the area around it. But the Japanese were trying furiously to recapture the island. They were sending in troops and supplies, guns, and there were nightly deployments by the Japanese heavy ships, battleships and cruisers that would come in and bombard the island of Guadalcanal at night. It was called the Tokyo Express. It had to be at night because if the Japanese were close to the island in the daytime, American airplanes could presumably sink them. And that on occasion did happen. Well, on the night of 12th and 13th of November, uh, one of the Tokyo Express visits came down and a flock of American cruisers and destroyers, 13 in all, turned out the battle was fought on Friday the 13th of November. And the Japanese were unable to bombard the island, but the Americans took heavy casualties. Destroyers were sunk. The cruiser Juno was sunk the following day. So then came another bombardment the following night. And the night after that, Lee was sent north to stave off yet another Tokyo Express. He had six ships, four destroyers, and they were not a group that had operated together. They had no unit commander, but they happened to be the four that had the most fuel on board. Lee by then was in the flagship USS Washington, and his former flagship USS South Dakota was steaming behind. This was narrow waters between Guadalcanal and Savo Island, and uh, it was not a good environment for battleships, which were designed to have gun duels out in the open ocean. But Admiral Halsey had no choice. He had to send them in to preserve the island. So the task force made a counterclockwise circumnavigation of Savile Island. And then about midnight, all hell broke loose with the firing of the big guns. And uh, the, I mentioned, interviewed a man who had been on the bridge of the Washington that night. And he said it was like a red snowball fight. You could see the ends of the projectiles, glowing cherry red, go into the cloud, then come down and hit the Japanese ships. Washington herself sank the cruiser Ionami, and, more importantly, inflicted fatal wounds on the battleship Kirishima. The task force uh, before had damaged another battleship, P.A., and the aviator's Set her to the bottom the following day. So here we are eight months after the beginning of the war and the Japanese have lost the first two battleships. Of the four destroyers, three were sunk, one limped away. The South Dakota had a power failure, so she was not able to contribute much to the battle. So really it fell to the Washington alone and Some studies have been done that the Washington scored perhaps as many as 20 hits on the Kurishima And in his after-action report, Lee wrote that the big difference was in the fact that the Americans had radar and the Japanese did not. This particular battle was a turning point in the campaign for Guadalcanal. The Japanese staged one more attempt near the end of November. And fairly soon after that, uh, began withdrawing their troops. And that battle was sort of a fork in the road toward victory. It began the island hopping campaign that got closer and closer to Japan, uh, culminating in victory in 1945.
0: Historians tend to rate Lee as a very, very capable commander. How would you describe his leadership style and his ability to adapt to the evolving nature of war at sea?
1: That he empowered his subordinates. He treated them with respect and kindness. And he adapted in being essentially a scientist in uniform that he understood The uses of radar, unlike almost all of his contemporary flag officers, that it can give you a picture of where the enemy is, and the fire control portion of it can aim your guns to hit what the search radar has picked out. So you can just imagine these big shells flying through the night air. And it was because he had mastered the technology he was uh, somewhat of a pioneer in the idea of a combat information center that would bring together information from different sources, the radar, lookouts, and what have you, and feed it to Lee on the bridge. Uh, one little vignette, he had had an unsuccessful experiment in trying to make a bomb when he was a boy in Kentucky, and his eyesight was badly damaged, but with glasses he could see well. And when the Washington unleashed her first 16-inch gun salvo, the blast knocked Lee's glasses to the deck. So here he is, the battle of his lifetime, and he had to grope around on the deck with his hands to recover his glasses. But he went on from there.
0: And I like how you describe him as a scientist in uniform. I think that's a perfect way to talk about him. So 1944, we have the Battle of Leyte Gulf. Can you explain what Lee is doing during this battle and why he misses out on the action?
1: Well, the the Battle of Leyte Gulf was in October 1944, and the Japanese had sent a four pronged group of ships. And the idea was to break through to the eastern side of the Philippine Islands and knock out the American transports that had landed. Shortly before that, the uh, two American submarines were involved in spotting the Japanese fleet as it came. It was one darter uh, torpedoed and sank the Japanese flagship, Otago, and Admiral Karita then switched to the mighty battleship Yamato, which had 18-inch guns. On the 24th of October, as there was a central force coming through the civilian sea. And uh, that was at Corita's leadership. The American carrier planes just really wreaked havoc on the Japanese ships, sank the super battleship Musashi. So for a while, the Japanese task force turned west again, away from Surigao or San Bernardino Strait. There was a, another force coming through to the south of that that uh, was to go through Surigao Strait and break out into the eastern part. But the Americans under Rear Admiral Jesse Oldendorf had laid an ambush for them, and the Japanese were not able to get through their ships. A number of them were sunk. So there was also a northern force, and this was under Admiral Ozawa. It consisted of aircraft carriers, and... It was really a decoy force because they really didn't have many planes or trained aviators. But the Japanese knew Admiral Halsey well enough, Commander 3rd Fleet, to know that he would want to go after the carriers. So that was a decoy force. And Halsey took the bait. He had been advised to leave Lee's battleships outside San Bernardino Strait so they could fire away at the Japanese coming through that narrow water. But Halsey just went hell-bent to the north. And then a message came in from Admiral Nimitz asking, where is Task Force 34, meaning Lee's ships? And then there was what Halsey took as a sarcastic jibe, the world wonders. So after getting almost up to the Japanese ships and for Lee's battleships to be able to shoot at them, They were now ordered south to go to San Bernardino Strait. Well, by that time, Corita had shot up a bunch of smoke carriers and destroyers and destroyer escorts and decided that he'd had enough of this, low on fuel. So he escaped, going the other way back to Japanese waters. By the time the battleships, Lee's fast battleships, got there, Corita and his ships had already flown the the coup. And this had to be the greatest disappointment of Lee's life. He had been in the Navy for all those years, 40 years since he started at the Naval Academy. And throughout the war, his object had been to sink the heavy Japanese ships. But he wasn't there when the opportunity came. I interviewed one of his staff members, a man named Noble Harris, and he said he brought the news to. Uh, Admiral Lee and Lee's shoulders slumped, and he might have seen a tear coming down his cheek. And Gil Ertsen told me that Lee's philosophy was that he wanted to be in the best position. In June of 1944, at the Marianas, he had been urged to go west to get the Japanese ships, but he declined, saying his ships weren't trained well enough. And so he didn't get to engage on that occasion. Now they'd had more training, and in this, that is the Japanese ships at the Marianas did not pose a threat to the Americans. It was just the opposite in the, the Philippines, because they did pose a threat, and Lee would have had them uh, like shooting fish in a barrel if he had been allowed to stay there. That disappointment had to eat away at him, and sort of disconsolate, as he told Mary Ertsen, that he had expected to have that fight. And now that victory was won and he was not with his battleships, he was downcast. And I read a letter that Mrs. Lee wrote to her sisters during the time that he was in Maine. And she said, Lee just is so eager to get back to his battleships. It's like they're his toys and he's afraid somebody else will break them if he's not there.
0: It does seem that that was a, a great disappointment for him. Let's talk about Halsey's typhoon. This is kind of a controversial chapter in Navy history. You write that Lee sees this storm on radar and understands that Halsey is taking the third fleet right into it. Why doesn't Lee challenge him?
1: Well, Lee uh, spotted that this was a screw up on Halsey's part and uh there was a, a lieutenant on board Lee's staff. and He said, this is the first time you've seen the eye of a typhoon on a radar scope. And the lieutenant pulled out Knight's Modern Seamanship. He said, look, on page so-and-so, it says, this is what you're supposed to do in the event of a typhoon. You should tell Admiral Halsey. Well, Halsey was senior to Lee. Lee had tried to call his attention in the... Uh, Philippines to the problem with the ships coming through San Bernardino Strait, and he'd just been brushed aside. He said, well, that's not the kind of thing that I can tell a four-star admiral to do. So Halsey blundered onward, and the Navy, U.S. Navy lost three destroyers, sunk, quite a number of others damaged And uh, it was another black eye for Halsey. And as a postscript in June 1945, Halsey ran the fleet into another typhoon. He should have been fired, but he was such a popular figure in American media that didn't want to take a hero away from an admiring public. The typhoon in December 1944 was really... Uh, the source of inspiration for the highlight of Herman Woke's great novel, The Kane Mutiny. And I have a, a enjoyable connection with that film, movie, book. I, I don't know how many times I've read the, the book or how many times I've seen the movie, but there's an instance where the infamous Captain Queeg, who is the captain of the destroyer Kane is in the pilot house and he's going berserk because he's terrorized by this storm. And then the helmsman is a man named Stillwell. I'm not making this up. And Quig in his anger says, get that idiot off the wheel. And the exec pipes up to him and said, no, sir, Stillwell is our best man. So I identify with that line.
0: Okay. Do you think that by late 1944 and early 1945, a lot of the commanders out there are absolutely exhausted? I mean, do you think Halsey's making some mistakes because he's just totally exhausted? Do you think Lee himself is just totally worn out? Did did you come across anything like that in your research?
1: I would say the answer is yes, in connection with both of them. Uh, Lee in particular had been out there since 1942 and was kept out there with the idea that he would be on scene to command a, a battle against the Japanese battleships. But by the spring of 1945, the Yamato was sunk and the Japanese had only one battleship left, Nagato, which was not operational anymore. And fatigue had to be a part of it. Lee did get a a pleasant two months in Maine on the Kamikaze Project. And that sort of revived his spirits. He was with his wife again. And the letters she sent back were just such a delight. She told about the things they were doing together. It was like a a honeymoon after they'd been married so many years before. And uh, he was a tired man. And I would think that the factors that played into his death by heart attack, had to be fatigued. He was a chain smoker one after another the whole time he was awake. His parents had both died of heart attacks and he was exhausted. And also he, he did not sleep much. And all these factors hit him on the morning of August 25th, 1945.
0: 1945, the Imperial Japanese Navy is pretty much neutralized as a surface force. And then Lee, as you've kind of already mentioned, is sent back to the United States. He's sent to work on kamikaze countermeasures. And for a long time, the United States Navy had been a battleship-centric battle fleet. During World War II, though, the carrier task forces kind of relegate the battleship to a more secondary role. Do we know what Lee thought about this change? I mean, we know that towards the end of his life, he's pretty discouraged, but is some of that due to this change in the Navy and the changing role of a battleship?
1: Well, perhaps, but he understood the reason for the change. And so throughout 1942, three, four, five, the battleships operated with the aircraft carriers to provide anti-aircraft port ward off the Japanese coming in. Lee recognized that this was the legitimate role, even though it wasn't what he had envisioned in the years before the war. But because he had been so foresighted in planning for any aircraft guns, then he knew that this was the thing to do. He was saddened that he didn't get to stay there till the end.
0: Tragically, as you mentioned at the start of the interview, Lee doesn't live to see the end of the war, and he suffers a heart attack August twenty fifth, nineteen forty five, on a launch in the harbor of Portland, Maine. How would you describe his legacy?
1: Well, there there are any number of things. One was his early emphasis on uh, anti aircraft gunnery and uh, being a pioneer in combat in information centers, which in this digital missile age have involved in the combat engagement centers, the experimental task force that he commanded in Casco Bay went through a number of name changes. It's now the operational test and evaluation force. And the idea is to take new ships, new weapons and try them out in operation to see where the bugs are, what needs to be fixed, what's working fine. So there's a direct lineage from that. The men who served with him so loyally became known as Uncle Ching's boys. A number of them became flag officers. There was one in particular, James L. Holloway Jr. He became a four-star admiral. His son, James L. Holloway III, was a baby and was out in China when Lee was there in the 1920s. I don't know that Lee can claim direct credit, but he learned so much from his father, who was a student from Lee. In many ways, the the Navy that Lee saw part of has evolved dramatically. I would suspect that uh, he would have been a great fan of guided missiles because he was always forward-looking and scientific. I started the research in 1975 to learn about Lee. The book was published in 2021, 46 years later. And any number of people asked me the obvious question, what took you so long? And I said, well, 12 other books intervened that I wrote, edited, or collaborated on. And my son, Jim, overheard my answer and in a mocking tone, he said, yeah, I just hate it when that happens.
0: I bet. All right. Well, thank you, sir, very much for joining us. And thank you for sharing about the life of Vice Admiral Lee.
1: My pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter, at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.